0: Welcome to the PhD in Parenting Podcast.
1: The podcast where we talk about being a parent in academia and an academic at home. We're your hosts. This is Judith.
0: And this is Aaron. So for many of us working in higher education, it's actually close to midterm time. So now we thought it would be time to take stock and evaluate how we're all doing. So in today's episode, we wanted to stop and reflect upon how we're faring through this turbulent time. During the summer, we spoke a lot in hypotheticals about what the school year could look like for instructors, for professors, and for our children. But now that the fall 2020 semester is underway, we have a lot to talk about, and we want to do so through a feminist perspective.
1: That's right. For the last few days or weeks, I've been getting articles almost on a daily basis that Emphasize the way in which women are affected by the pandemic, especially working moms. And so today we want to look at that generally, but also with a particular focus on women in the academy and how they are um, affected by the pandemic. We've been following the news a little bit on this. We've been reading articles and we have collected a few today that we want to unpack. The first one that I'm going to go into a little bit here is called the virus moved female faculty to the brink. Will universities help? And this one was in the New York Times by Jillian Kramer. One of the key takeaways that we found in there, we're going to just kind of start with a quote here and jumpstart the discussion and see where that takes us. The pandemic has laid bare gender inequalities across the country and women in academia have not been spared. I don't think there are any surprises here, but we'll dig in a little bit deeper. Uh, The article goes on to say the outbreak erupted during university spring terms hastily forcing classes online and researchers out of their laboratories. Faculty with young or school aged children, especially women, had to juggle teaching their students with overseeing their children's distance learning from home. So what we're, what we're seeing in many of these articles that are coming in is that even in egalitarian households or households who think of themselves as such, the additional tasks are falling disproportionately on women. Um, and so we want to talk a little bit about what the reasons for this are and then also what the consequences are. Some of the reasons I think that I have observed in my household, but that I'm also seeing in, in all of the research that's popping up is that moms tend to know where everything is. Children have the tendency to go to moms first. So a lot of the women that are interviewed for these articles report that even if they have arrangements where the husband is working two hours and the, and the wife is working two hours or one, one spouse is working for, um, for a while and then the other one, the children still tend to come to the mom even if it's her dedicated work time because that's, maybe that's what they're used to. Maybe there's the idea that mom knows where everything is or we ultimately need mom's permission to do uh, whatever it is that we want to do. So another reason that plays into this a lot is salary discrepancies. So if you are in a scenario where uh, one spouse earns more money than the other, then I think it's only natural that the emphasis is put on the higher salary because it will likely secure the the survival of the household for the long term. So if we are in a situation where one person has to risk potentially losing a job or having to cut hours, it makes sense to select that person that has the lower salary. So that leaves women in that role just statistically speaking more often. Another reason that I can think of uh that I was that I was thinking of as I was preparing for this was that women tend to have these internalized standards more so than men, I think. So with something that I've observed at home is that I just will more quickly feel that there's an need to intervene in something or that the children need help even though they're maybe not even asking. And so I think there are a lot of the disruptions are based on sort of this internalized pressure of how I think I need to be parenting. And so so those are all sort of reasons that I think, contribute. What's important to say here, I think, is that there's not one single reason that makes it so that women are disproportionately affected by this. It's like a whole group of reasons that work together, which makes it harder to identify where the problem is, but it also makes it harder to find solutions for it. Can you think of any other reasons or is there are there other things going on for you that might contribute to this disproportionate distribution of tasks? Right.
0: I think that we've talked about this um just off off the podcast, but this idea of how we are still kind of enmeshed as much as we think we're not in some pretty old school ideologies about household division of labor. And I know, I know there are families out there that you said that are more egalitarian, that there's like this really awesome separation of duties that seems very fair and very equal. But I think for many of us there, we're still, we still see these sort of like remnants of those old school ideologies about the housewife, right? About who is going to do what. And I know in my household, I do the laundry, I do the cooking, I do the shopping a bit. I do get some help with that. And I think this is all just kind of like enmeshed in what I saw growing up. And my mother worked a little bit um, outside of home, but I just observed this. It's kind of perpetuated in a lot of our cultural representations. I think it has been repackaged in a sense where we might be learning about some of these ideals in a different way. We're not seeing like Donna Reed or Carol Brady or any of the other people But we're seeing Pinterest posts that make, you know, and show a beautiful, well-manicured domestic space by a woman, typically. I know there's men that do this as well. But I feel like in some ways, as much as we think things have changed, we're just seeing it repurposed and repackaged. And the same old ideology is about having this great home space and home cooking and planning and all this stuff. It's just a little bit different. Now, I was thinking about what happened to me in the spring, which is a little bit interesting because I actually do earn less than my husband because he's a business owner. But because of the nature of his work, which is going into people's homes, he was one of the people that became unemployed. And so the weird thing was, I'm able to do my work from home, even though that was stressful and kind of a little overwhelming to say. It was literally like an email on a Friday. And that was like, as of Monday, everything's online. <laughs> and you're like, okay. Right. And so I had that thrust (laughs) into my lap. And then I think the funny thing is for our female academics at home, part of the reason that this fell under my purview is that I work in higher education. So it seemed like a natural fit, right? That somehow I have more of a sense of what's happening in second grade math. I don't know that that's true, but it is kind of that dynamic in our household, which is like, even in the morning, I mean, this literally happened yesterday my seven-year-old daughter was getting up and I told my husband, can you please go help her? You know? And she's like, I don't want daddy. I want mommy. Mommy knows where the socks are. And I'm like, no, you know, your father knows where they are as well. He's perfectly capable. He's also an adult. Uh, but there is a bit of that in my household as well. So I think the fact that I was already positioned as a quote academic, which is obviously a little more related to teaching than what my husband does and home repairs and home improvements and remodeling, seemed to be more of a natural fit. But the weird thing was, he was home a lot more. And I still felt like a lot of that kind of was put on my shoulders. And I'm not here to try to like negate what he was doing. It just seemed like that's how it fell in my family. There's a lot happening right now. And a lot of sort of like different aspects of our lives and our culture and ideologies to kind of make it so the brunt of this feels like it's falling on the women. I've been called recently a perfectionist and oh, I wonder why? <laughs> I actually a lot of people recently we had to take this like management assessment um, for leadership. And apparently, yes, <laughs> that also confirmed this idea. And I wondered though, if that's just me or if a lot of us in this field have that sort of penchant for wanting everything to be in its place. And it said, you know, you really like order. You really want everything to be ordered, whether that's in a moral and ethical sense, but also like in a lifestyle sense. And I'm like, that's not me, but I guess it is. And I wonder though, if that's just me or that's all of us that are kind of trying to make sense of this chaos, right? That we want to have this order. And what is it, is it, you know, something that's been more ingrained in our ideologies about women and about being a mother and about being a wife. So I think what you're saying is accurate, that there's so much happening here. It's tough to just pin it down to one specific circumstance, but like just a lot of things happening right now.
1: Yeah, and as you're saying this, I'm also wondering if the chaos is sort of what makes the order even more desirable. And it's also something I think that's that's important for kids. I just remember like when first when we first got news that the kids were gonna stay home for a little while, the first thing I did was to create a schedule or, you know, what I was thinking of more what I was thinking more of as like a routine for the day, so that um, we could all kind of know what what was coming when throughout the day. And I know that there was, you know, and I took some of that online, and I saw some other people posting things online, and there was like a pretty quick response from like other women that were just like, "Get away from me with your schedule and your routine," and I. <laughs> to just like try and like make it through the day somehow without having yet another thing to stress about which I totally understand which I totally got but at the same time for me it it was like the routine is like the only thing that will make me that will help me hang on and like not lose my marbles every step of the way and also sort of help the kids negotiate this unpredictable and unprecedented time, if you will. You know, as you're talking about the chaos and the order, I'm wondering if, you know, this, this whole situation sort of increases that need for order in some of us as well. So, you know, I think people have called me a perfectionist too before. (laughs) Oh, Um, don't say. No, I get it. I I I don't know to what extent that was like already the case beforehand and to what extent maybe this just like came out even more in this situation just to like hang on to any sort of like minimal control that you could kind of get, if you will.
0: Right. Right. And that kind of makes me think of our next talking point, which is that some of this or a lot of what women in academia are facing right now isn't really new um, you know that right. this idea that like did this just bring out some of this or is it just making bare as the headline says a lot of things that have been ongoing you know instead there's more severe versions of long-standing gender gaps that already cause universities to hemorrhage female faculty especially women of color and these uh, these require measures that go beyond just the response to the pandemic and as you kind of were talking about earlier it's kind of important to think through how the pandemic has though had an impact on all three parts of academic labor, which is research, teaching and service. And so I thought with your background that you kind of have in publishing, especially, I thought it'd be really neat for you to kind of talk through what we're thinking about um, the current research about the status of academics, female academics in the pandemic with the idea of research. So what does the research say about women and research right now?
1: Right. Yeah. So I mentioned already before on the podcast that I got the impression pretty quickly in communicating with my authors and my potential authors that it was a lot more difficult for women to make time for research. And, you know, unsurprisingly, as more and more studies come out about this, it does appear to be the case that women are publishing significantly fewer papers and articles than their male counterparts during the pandemic. There are some numbers that you accumulated for us. Thanks, Aaron. Uh, the a study in the Lancet notes that women, while women comprise seventy percent of the global health workforce and more than fifty percent of medical graduates in many countries, women and gender minorities remain underrepresented in medical leadership. So, only twenty-two percent of full prof- professors in American medical schools, and twenty-three in Europe, are women with women of color being particularly underrepresented with only 0.5% uh, of full professors in American medical schools being black women, 0.5%. This is sort of like the setup that we're talking about. That's the wow. situation that, that we have. So the people that are even sort of potentially able to publish in these particular fields. And of course, as we all know, publishing is essential to ca- career advancements. Since the mid 90s, And up until the pandemic, women's authorship in major medical journals has increased from 27 to 37%. But during the COVID-19 crisis, if you will, these numbers have dropped again. During the pandemic, the number of Articles that are authored by women or that are co-authored by women has dropped to 16 and 23 percent, respectively. So we're seeing uh, a significant drop in female authorship in the medical field already in during the COVID 19 months. Uh, so I think that's really that's really important, and I think that that goes for other fields as well. We just have this one study that sort of speaks specifically to this particular field. My experience of course is mostly anecdotal, but I am seeing the same thing that you know, it's getting harder and harder for women to make time to research and it's you know, I think that that's something that's that's probably the first thing to give because it there's less sort of immediate pressure, there's less immediate or fewer immediate deadlines compared to teaching where you have to sit in front of the Zoom meeting at you know 9am because your students are there and it also requires a particular type of headspace, right? You have to sort of be able to think through some things. Writing doesn't happen when there's a child standing next to you asking for a snack or something like that. And so, and, and the, mental, the mental space needs to be there, which is harder to access when there's all these added stresses that we've been going through. So I think, you know, it's not surprising that that research activity has, has dropped. And the other argument, the other thing that I came across, too, in researching this this episode was just the issue of, particularly in the sciences, labs closing down at the beginning of the year, right? So, like, where is this data coming from? I guess that's less of a gendered issue. But the, you know, the idea of not being able to go into the labs because they're closed, that just sort of cuts an entire set of data out that you need in order to produce research. So that's another um, another factor to keep in mind as we're talking about research production during COVID.
0: Right. And that would apply to anyone that's a parent because you can't, as we noted, Danielle Hutchison, our guest that we had a few weeks ago, talked about you can't like bring your child to the lab. You know, I mean, for us, writing in the humanities, I can still try to attempt to write from home, but, you know, and have my kids nearby because this was, again, when we're thinking about how this has impacted school and daycare and childcare and all that we can't, you know, if you're working in a lab, you can't just bring your child to work. So even if a lab was open, you know, where is a child going to go during this time? And as you mentioned, the labs mostly were closed for a long time. I find it incredibly difficult to try and write and think critically about the world when people are at home. I mean, it could be anyone, but I really need that space of my office. And I haven't had that available I could ask for permission to go to my office, but our policy right now is basically like, if you don't need to be on campus, do not come to campus. And I think that's a solid policy. I'm happy with that. But I really do miss that quiet room of my own, right? That quiet space where I could shut the door. I could just sit and maybe think For an hour uninterrupted, you know, and we don't have that anymore. I think that's really important. And as you noted, what does this look like down the road for female academics? If so much of the tenure track is tied up in research, the potential effect of this could be long lasting. I don't know what's going to be happening with COVID-19 in the next six months, nor the next year. What does this look like, you know, five years from now when a woman is trying to make a case for tenure? How are the rules going to shift, if at all? Because, you know, I've, I've read a little bit about that, but I'd be curious to see if allowances are going to be made now.
1: Right. I think that's a, that's an important factor to think about. And some universities have, you know, offered policies where they allow a pausing of the tenure clock. A couple of the articles that we looked at for today mention um, Boise State, for example, and then Northwestern as well. They both offered policies where professors on the tenure track were allowed to pause the tenure clock. However, uh, there's also ample research, again, from before the pandemic, that shows that the pausing of the tenure clock is not an unequivocally positive policy. It actually has some impact to the effect that—so there are different schools that allow both men and women— To pause the 10 year clock when they have an addition to the family. However, it turns out that when women take that year, they usually use it to actually focus on their parental role and growing into that parental role with the new addition to the family. Whereas men are much more able to use that year for additional research. And so they are able to use that year to actually build a stronger case for their tenure. And so I imagine that that would very much still be the same, if not worsened during the pandemic, when we're already talking about how women are taking on disproportionately more of the tasks. So I think that's, you know, that's one of the policies that sort of schools have put in place, but it's not necessarily a given that that's, you know, a great way to handle this and a great way to to sort of remedy the challenges that women are facing in regards to research. Now the other branch of academic activity of course is teaching. And a lot of the a lot of um a lot of professors have pressured their universities to give them lower teaching loads, but the other impact that and and schools are not always happy to grant that wish. At the same time, what we're also seeing in regards to teaching and when it comes to building that tenure case is the way that the pandemic has impacted teaching evaluations. And we all know how important teaching evaluations are for tenure cases. There was research done by a research team that have already reported before the pandemic that female faculty usually receive lower teaching evaluations than their male colleagues. There's this General perception of women as less qualified, less expert in their field, particularly in um, mathematical courses and things like that. But it's also it's also the case in other fields. So so if we're if we're assuming that the students are sort of carrying this gender bias within them, how are they going to respond to teaching situation? You know, if we think back to to the spring, where an instructor is now all of a sudden at work at home with a child. So the the example that one of the articles gave was like the teacher, you know, on the Zoom call b- bouncing around a crying baby. How is how are students going to perceive that if that's right. a female teacher versus a male teacher? We all know, you know, the stereotypical stories about the, you know, the high fives that a father gets for taking his kids to the park on a Saturday morning. Whereas if a mother does it, everybody will focus on the fact that she pulled her phone out a couple times. Right? right. And so the same thing I think holds true for student evaluations when students see their instructors dealing with this crisis and handling, you know, handling this crisis and, you know, their, their family members or their pets or whatever coming on screen, the likelihood that, that, that will negatively impact women's student evaluations is a lot higher. So there's, you know, there's an important impact on on the women's tenure case in that case as well. So again, like you said, looking a little bit further down the line, there are multiple negative impacts that the pandemic has on women as they're sort of working towards their tenure applications.
0: Even if you're at perhaps a community college or a career college that doesn't have the tenure track This still does play a role. Evaluations still play a role in job security. Now, um, in Michigan, we are at will. You know, it's like it's called being an at will um, worker. What that basically boils down to is that I can be let go for anything at any point in time with little warning, is basically, you know, what it boils down to. And so these evaluations could possibly impact something like that. They can also work in favor of someone like myself who is working at a career community college where, you know, it's like, well, you know, Aaron's consistently received high evaluations from students, but they often do, I think, start to give example to things that we all mostly are already aware of as women. Which is if I am a strict professor with high standards, because I'm a woman, I might be categorized as a bitch or nasty right. or shrill. Whereas if it's a male professor, it might be you know well he's really tough, but you know that's that's expected because he's at the top of his field. And so I'm wondering the other um, thing that I think is really important about this, and you know we're we're going to talk about this zoomification model. I don't know if my true self comes across the internet as well as it would in person. I think there is a lot of gender bias, too, regarding female professors about how warm or approachable or compassionate they are. I'm very curious about that type of research because I don't know if those same modifiers are typically used to discuss male professors, but I get a lot of that, like, oh, she was just really kind and compassionate, and that's great. I mean, I am. I hope to be, but... I wonder then if that's one of my highlights, if that's one of the things I'm good at, is that going to come across when I've never actually met my students face-to-face? And then um, conversely to this, I was just in another teaching seminar where someone talked about teaching for the YouTube generation. And this scholar's idea or argument was that, oh, it's great to work in some of this fun home stuff into your class. You know, like, it's okay if they see your cat or your baby or your kids, but I don't know about that because I think I'm just thinking about it critically. Like you said, I mean, if I have a crying child in the background and I'm trying to teach some, you know, very um, difficult abstract or conceptual thought, I'm going to be distracted. I'm not going to lie about that. You know, it's very hard for me to have that, those two things going on at once and do a good job at either. So I don't, you know, I just don't see how, oh yeah, cool. Teaching to the YouTube generation. They're going to love, you know, yeah, they might like seeing your cat. But I don't know if they're going to love it if, you know, your seven-year-old busts into your Zoom meeting. I would love to see the next data set on this because I'm very curious about this. I wonder, too, if students, they're having a hard time. Do they understand that we are also having a hard time? Like, there's a ton that I receive about supporting students, supporting students, supporting students. And I get that. But there has been far less about supporting us. Does that make sense? Like right. I think Yeah. We're the glue holding this place together. I wonder sometimes if the students sense like, yeah, we're having a difficult time too. But I feel like we have to like keep it together a lot more and keep this air of professionalism. And I do think there is a big gender gap um that I think is, you know, really important to talk about and to keep looking at.
1: And there's a lot of research that that supports the idea that having a family is advances Men's careers, especially in the academy, and that it disadvantages women in their career uh, prospects. And so I think that's a very important point. And the other thing that this idea of letting your family be part of your YouTube lessons or your Zoom lessons or whatever is a very ideal scenario where I think what people have in mind is, um, you know, a child that like peacefully colors next to you or something <laughs> right. like that. They don't picture a screaming baby. And it doesn't account for the fact that, you know, small children can't be put on schedules. I can't guarantee that, you know, my baby is not going to cry in, a, in the middle of a phone call or... That you know, I I try to schedule some things, meetings that I have to schedule around her nap time, and it doesn't always work that way. And generally speaking, that's not cute. Like, it's not something that people appreciate when I you know when I collaborate with other people, with authors or with colleagues, and I set aside a time, then I think they expect my full attention during that time, and. And they deserve that full attention during that time, as does my child. And I cannot be in two places at the same time. And so I think I'm very sort of disconcerted by this idea that we can do all of these things at the same time, just because I am not a believer in multitasking at all. I think I've maybe mentioned that before. I don't think that that's, I'm not very good at it. And I think that there's a lot of research to back up that most of us aren't very good at it that we're not actually doing multiple things at the same time we're just switching between different things really quickly when we think right. that we're multitasking and there's a lot of friction there there's a lot of energy loss when your brain has to stop one task and start another task and do that really really quickly and so i think that that's shortchanging everybody and that you're not getting the proper breaks that you that you really need and that you deserve and so I think, in a lot of ways, this you know we can talk about this a little bit more when we're trying to see how we're gonna when we're trying to think about how we might move forward from the pandemic um in the academy, but I just am very disconcerted by this idea that work life and home life are gonna be are gonna merge more in the future. I'm not sure that I will find that very enjoyable to be quite honest,
0: no, I have lamented this over the last eight weeks or so that I've been in class I can't stress enough that I'm happy that I feel safe that I'm working from home but my husband even said he's like well no you're not working from home now you live at work and I thought that was actually pretty clever (laughs) (laughs) because I'm like oh yeah because I've already told you about this but it just seems like now there's no respite I actually liked driving to my office. I liked that space of my office that was separate from this world where I didn't have to be reminded of all the things that I need to do here. So I don't like, I don't, as much as I liked the idea before of kind of like working from home, I guess I would like the space to maybe just be outside of the home once in a while. And I miss that part of my day for sure.
1: It infiltrates each other. Right. So when you're at work and it's time and you decide that you need a break, you're probably going to take a break or maybe like we said before, like you're walking from one class to the other or whatever. Now, when I'm working from home, if I need a break, what do I do? I go unload the dishwasher. I do a load of laundry. I do you know, I fold some laundry. I clean up the kitchen. I, I run the vacuum. So like your breaks are filled with more work and with everybody being home like you could say well you know if you're at work then you just have to do it after work all those all those housework tasks but with everybody being home more right. there's there's just more of that housework so you know there's more laundry and there's there's more snacks to be made and more dishes to be cleaned up and things like that that break space you're just losing that that space that you had before to take real breaks from your work and then to come back to your work with a fresh mind. And instead you're working through another separate task list. And so I agree with you. I find that very challenging. And some days I wish that I had an office to go to um, that wasn't adjacent to my kitchen. (laughs)
0: <laughs> exactly. That's I'm I'm and I'm I'd be curious to hear if this uh, is the same thing happening for any of our listeners. I mean, we're really speaking towards our female audience today, but it could be true for our male listeners as well. But if you are working specifically from home, I do the exact same thing you did. I'm like, oh well, okay. I've graded my ten essays, um, so let's take a break. And in the past, that might actually mean I left campus and went and got a coffee or just something. I'm a little right. mental break. Now, exactly. Well. I guess I should take this pause to think about dinner. I guess maybe I constantly have laundry folding in the background and I'm always like mindful that my students can't see that. I put up like a zoom screen or whatever, because I always have like three or four (laughs) loads of laundry I'm folding. You know, that's my break from work now is folding laundry. I mean, it's, I feel like uh, things are pretty organized. That's, you know, that's my coping strategy. Apparently like you talked about earlier, the multitasking I don't know that's a good thing. You know, we always like kind of have this phrasing and thinking about, oh, multitasking. So oh, this is great. I struggle with that because I don't know if when a person is working on like seven different things at once, if any of them get done well, you know, right. Um, Agreed. and that was a struggle that I had sometimes in my dissertation writing when I was in that mode, which was like, I was trying to write a dissertation chapter, but also trying to teach a class. And also my children are much younger. So trying to work with them, whatever it happened to be. And I probably already mentioned this on the show, but I just remember advisor going, you know, it's like your writing, it's like so choppy and fragmented. It's like you started and then you put this down for like two weeks and then came back to it and it seems totally disjointed. And I'm like, yeah, that's probably because that's probably what I did, (laughs) you know, and that was, that was a complaint about that because it's just choppy because, you know, yeah, I was probably writing that chapter and then something happened with one of my kids and then I had to go pick someone up and then I had to do A, B, C, and D. And it was a long time before I got to return back to that project. So we've looked into this and probably even mentioned it that service work disproportionately often falls on the shoulders of female academics. Again, I think there's something with gender with that. um, And I think we could unpack that. You probably could just do a whole talk about how women fulfill the roles of service work. Um, And there's, you know, the actual traditional service, but then even like the sort of non-traditional, I'm thinking of like kind of counseling, coaching, being there for students, that sort of like that's not documented. There's a lot of that service work that I think again falls on the shoulders of female academics probably more than their male counterparts. But the service work, the serving on committees, councils, that. I would say is definitely disproportionately um, falls into the realm of women. So your kind of question or what we're thinking about is like, how how does service look now? How do we do this? Um, we're, do we have any research on this? Or like does this idea of trying to get service work done all online through Zoom or Google Meets, does this just uh, give us more stress and more anxiety and more what you call Zoom fatigue?
1: Just to confirm what you started out by saying The multiple of the articles that I read for today reference the way that female academics are more uh, engaged with helping their students through these various crises that we're living through. I think students are more likely to come to female professors with their troubles and ask them for help or just sort of like seek that connection and mentorship. That's something that the articles and the research in the articles definitely confirms that this is something that falls more heavily on the shoulders of female faculty. And of course, I think in some ways that that same might be true um, for the home life and helping the children through these sort of challenging times in terms of the zoomification I or you you called it the zoomification at some point um (laughs) there there's sort of this this video conference fatigue going around that I saw articles about pretty quickly after you know after the first like after the first weeks when everybody was really excited and everybody was like checking in with friends that they hadn't, you know, talked with in 10 years and set up Zoom meetings to check in with them. And then like six weeks into that, everybody was like, I cannot have another Zoom call. And I think a lot of that has to do with the way that the Zoom meetings are set up, the way that Zoom works and FaceTime and all of those and Skype, all of those video conferences. One of the best pieces of advice that I saw when I was reading about this was to turn off your own video. I think that, like, especially for women, it's so much more challenging to sort of look to sort of have your own video and then to be conscious of the way that you look to other people. I think that's really like emotionally draining. So, on top of like having more of these meetings and being in more of these committees you have that sort of like emotionally draining experience of constantly being faced with your own image that might seem like a small point to make but i do think that that's really something that takes up a lot of time and energy i don't know do you think that i'm over over stressing that
0: i feel like it's a distraction i feel as though i can relate to the point about having too many zoom meetings in one day and another thing that we've talked about is it's never quite the same organic feel to the meeting. I actually have had probably three or four different sort of Zoom training meetings in the last week or so. And one of them, it was a really great discussion, but I just didn't feel like the rhythm or pacing, it was a roundtable discussion. It just felt off to me. There was something that didn't have the same cadence or qualities, natural kind of flow of a conversation that one might have in a meeting room. And so there's that part of it, which I find kind of, and then there's the tech issue of it, which is I find myself really sort of frustrated and annoyed when someone starts to lag and get behind and everyone's like, Oh, is it still on? Oh, we can't hear you. We can't hear you. And I find that just like annoying, (laughs) which I'm sure everyone does, but I feel like it's like wasting my time. And then to your comment about sort of seeing myself. Yes. And I'd be curious to know how that breaks down uh, between different people in different genders like you know is is this this because of who I am um and the different sort of aspects of my life that I've already noted I've felt self-conscious about the way I look or whatever but yes that constant like oh there I am do I look like I'm paying attention do I look okay to be on this screen today are you know I think that's kind of a distraction but I have had other meetings where like uh they were like you have to keep your video on I do feel that sense of fatigue does the work get done in the same way or are we just kind of all sort of really I feel like sometimes maybe we rush through these Zoom meetings because we just want to get off of them so I'm wondering how you know when we try to do things for our students um that's another whole end of things via service which would be like student organizations and student clubs right that we try to have some of these different available um, opportunities available for students I don't know that it's quite the same thing, right? Like it's not the same as having a meeting in person, putting on different events, different cultural events. Um, we're trying to do a lot of it online. And I'd be curious to see if they're, if we get as much buy-in from the student body because, you know, they're probably Zoomed out too, right?
1: That'll be interesting to see how much uh, engagement you get for that.
0: So, so far we've talked about sort of the three arms of academia, if you will. And I think this is a really telling conversation. But as you and I both have studied gender and feminist theory, what, if anything, do you think all of these different issues and components of academia reveal about the state of feminism in general? You know, what does this kind of tell us about the work of feminism, you know, for second, third wave of feminism, where we are? What does this reveal to us as feminist scholars?
1: Yeah, I think this is a really tough question or the answer to that question I think for me is a little tough to handle. I think to me when this first started happening, I was very worried for working women in general or working mothers. I pretty quickly started sort of looking for information about this because I feared that this the the way that it was being handled and the and just generally the lack of availability of childcare and whatnot would force women out of the workforce. And I kept saying, like this is going to throw us back 50 years or whatever. And the longer that this has been going on and just these reports of how across the board, women are disproportionately affected by the additional workload makes me think that We were never as far ahead as we thought we were. I don't want to sound too pessimistic about this, but at the same time, there have been some voices by male professors. That were sort of excited about being away from the classroom because now they got to do all this extra work. And there was uh, there was an article about a Twitter outcry where somebody had gotten a message like that from a from a male colleague and was very up in arms because they said, you know, being away from the classroom for me means being at home taking care of the kids, everything that we've sort of already discussed. And I feel like what we're seeing is that the setup that we have right now, the pandemic that's going on, the the schools that are closed, women taking on these tasks more and more sort of brings back this old ideal of the male professor. I think this is sort of like a really, you know, well-known narrative. I probably don't need to like dig up any uh, particular research on that, but just this idea of the male professor who can be a successful Uh, male professor if he's a parent who can be a successful professor if he's a parent because he has a partner at home who sort of manages the household takes care of the kids you know is sort of available when these like impromptu meetings pop up or evening meetings or things like that there's just always the assumption that there's somebody else in the home who picks up the slack and I think what we're seeing now is that that model is that we're falling back onto that model which makes me think that we were never really that far away from it to begin with.
0: Something thing that I feel like is, you know, important to mention is so we were able to go out into the workforce and get our jobs and that's great. But I do feel like now I just do double the work. It's not as though because I'm in the workforce and a working woman that suddenly my partner was like, Oh, you're working. And so everything should be divided down the middle. I just think that all that the vestiges of, The old ideologies remain. And so if I want to get it done, I have to do it. I have to do all of it. So it's not that I can have it all. I feel like I have to do it all. And I mean, maybe there is more communication that's needed between spouses. You had some interesting sort of like reference materials back from your research. Did you want to speak a little bit to those?
1: Well, there was just this one segment in one of the chapters that I wrote for my dissertation where I was looking at uh, an interview with Amy Poehler, who I love. And this is something that sort of like other women also very frequently, a point that other famous women also very frequently make, which is, you know, they get asked in interviews, how do you handle it all? And they find that question offensive because they say, you know, why is nobody asking the the men the same question? Nobody would ever ask, you know, a famous actor in an interview who's also a father, how do you manage it all? And I think taking offense at that question shows a desire to live in a world that's different kind of thing. Whereas I think that question reveals that that's still sort of the the basic assumption and that's still sort of how most households are handled is that you know women tend to handle more of the household and child child care duties the other the other thing to sort of like keep in mind in that I think when there is sort of an offense taken by that question a lot of times when women aren't doing 50 percent an exact 50 percent that often doesn't mean that the husband is doing 50%, that often means that some of that work gets outsourced. So I think that's a that's a different, uh, that's an important point to keep in mind too. Again, like what we're seeing here, I think is just a really strong reminder about how much work we still have to do and how many conversations we still need to have about these things. And one important point to make is that many women that were interviewed for these articles expressed a reluctance to take universities up on the offer to pause the tenure clock, et cetera, because they, wanted, they didn't want to be perceived as slackers or as somebody who can't keep up with the work, where I think we have finally gotten to a point where – women literally can no longer do all of the things that we're being asked to do. So, you know, there's before leading before the pandemic, there was already this narrative that like, I'm a working mother, I'm also a chauffeur, I'm also a chef, I do all the shopping, I you know, a household manager, like doctors, appointment, taker, whatever. And now on top of that, many women are also being asked to be a homeschooler or a teacher and it is just like the one thing that is just too much too many and so now you know after the pandemic once you know once we come out of this there's gonna have to be some negotiation of these terms And some more conversations, like you said, both on sort of an individual level, individual couples, but also, you know, continuing to have these conversations on a broader scale to see how things can be um, rejiggered and reshuffled if, as a society, we decide that it's desirable for women to be in the workforce. And, And I think that there are enough women out there that would agree with that. And so hopefully, you know, there'll be some conversations coming out of that. That will help us, um, like I said, reshuffle responsibilities, both in terms of outsourcing from the family unit, but also within the family unit. So um, moving forward, um, Aaron, do you have any thoughts on how you think, you know, what some benefits are from the pandemic? Are there any things that we have learned that we can take forward? to accommodate women in the academy a little bit more. Is there anything, you know, have you learned anything about what requires presence and what doesn't? Do you think that universities will move forward to accept flexibility in certain areas? um, And how does that impact your life? How do you, how do you feel about um, sort of looking forward from the pandemic? Do you have any thoughts on that?
0: Right. I mean, I think from a business point of view, I wonder if this is going to greatly impact the way things are done. And I think you'll hear a lot of anecdotal reference from those of us on the front lines working with students that we don't want it to shift this way, just talking to people for the podcast, talking to other colleagues and coworkers and former classmates. Many of us see the need to have, you know, these synchronous online classes right now as a stopgap, but many of us would prefer to go back to what we love which is literally being in a brick and mortar classroom. That being said, I'm wondering if from the um, business point of view, if we're not going to be seeing a lot more of this to come. Because from the financial point of view, right, there's obviously way less overhead for our colleges. From the facilities standpoint, we are no longer having to have an entire wing of a building open so there's no electricity there's no need to heat that part of the building I mean this is all very practical information but I'm just kind of seeing it through what would the CFO say or think about the other thing that's kind of what I was thinking about is you know and then I'm running my classroom I'm paying for my wi-fi I'm paying for the If I need to print anything up i mean and and so I think even from that standpoint, are they saving money there? I think there should be a discussion about you know maybe actually offering some compensation for the wi fi bill because mm-hmm. it takes a lot to run this, but you know now I'm doing it from my home office. There's going to be a lot less money spent for. Travel expenses, right? Because I am, if I'm only going to conferences online, they're way cheaper. But also, just a lot of times for my particular college, because we have campuses spread out all over the state, we did a lot of travel. And every time I did that travel, mileage had to be paid. Sometimes Uh, a substantial amount because some of the campuses I drove to are two and a half hours away. I, I, and so there's a lot of wins here from the institutional standpoint. For me, I do think one positive is, you know, we don't have to always have that meeting. I don't, you know, what's this proved to, I think everyone is that we don't need to drive to from Detroit to have this in-person meeting for this discussion. We can do it from home. And so I'm actually glad that some of that has like been taken off my plate. We don't always have to have a meeting about something. Um, we have a running joke in my family, which is like, could it have been in an email? <laughs> Did you need a meeting for this? Or is it right. something that literally could have just been sent around in an email? Yeah. I'm glad that we're kind of making that shift. But you know, so there's some of that pressure that's gone away, which I think is, Great. And another thing, again, working in the metro Detroit area, I know you've talked about your drive when you're in D.C., how that commute can be another just whole stress bomb, if you will. <laughs> yeah. I have to take stock every day and go, you know what, though, Aaron? you didn't spend two and a half hours on the freeway today. So that's yeah. a good thing. So I like that. The downfall for this for me. Just missing out on some of those face-to-face experiences. Now, I don't do, you know, I don't do experiments in my class, but there is some hands-on work that I like to do. I like to bring in physical copies of texts, like books, like scholarly journal articles, For my students to examine and look at and see and inspect because they're not always familiar with those genres and that's harder to replicate. I like to bring in examples of texts for my students to mark up and annotate and I can do some of that online and and replicate that in some way, shape or form. But I don't quite feel like it's always a one to one ratio that the work I did in the face to face classroom can be replicated through the Internet. Um, We just did a peer editing assignment the other week that was a total fail. I'm just going to put that out there, folks. I thought it was going to be really awesome. I'm like, okay, everyone break up into small groups. I'm going to use the groups function and Zoom, and you're going to review each other's work. There was a total barrier when it came to sound. They were creating um, narrated PowerPoints, and so they could not hear each other's sound, even though I had a setting clicked on there that was supposed to optimize sound. It didn't go out the way I planned. and so. I just feel like I'm missing some of that. I'm missing that sense of community. And so I think there's wins and losses on both sides, if you will, for this this model. I just, I'm hearing a lot where I think some colleges are embracing this synchronous learning model and that's where they wanna go moving forward. I think it works for some students, but I don't think it works for everything. And I think you are gonna see a lot of pushback from faculty members, especially longstanding faculty members that have done their work For 20 or 30 years this way. I'm a little bit newer to the game. So I'm, you know, and I think some of the people that are more recent graduates are a little more familiar with doing online teaching, but I think for some of the folks, they're not going to want to do this. I don't think this is what they signed up for. So that's kind of a long-winded answer. But I think there are some really positive aspects for all this for me right now. But I think there's also some downfalls and downsides to continuing to work this way.
1: The classroom in the humanities is just so important. Like, I think that the conversations that you have in within the classroom and the critical thinking skills that students learn in those areas are just going to be so much more sort of rewarding and intense than I just don't think you can replicate that if you're online but I also remember for example when I was teaching composition courses that there were weeks when I would have one-on-one meetings with each of the students um, and there's really no reason if you have established that sort of report in the classrooms not to hold those individual one-on-one meetings via Zoom, right? So I could see like a mixed approach working really well if schools were going for it. But yeah, I agree with you that a lot of faculty probably will not be excited about the prospect of teaching online long-term. I have not heard from very many people that are excited about teaching online. I'm not going to lie. And that might be different in other fields too. Um, That's obviously a possibility. But So that's sort of from from a pedagogical perspective. What are some um, pros and cons for the parents thoughts on that?
0: <laughs> well, we talked about this too like, okay, so if I am home, there are there are some scenarios where this is a little more helpful, but at the same time not, right? So if one of my children is sick, I am here already. So there's not that, like, I've had times where I, I you know, I had to drive at a breakneck speed to get to my child, and I think you mentioned that time as well, to, like, drive an hour to pick up the child from school who is ill. So that's been eliminated, but then at the same time, this goes back to just the beginning of the episode, how am I really going to be working well and really focused on the task at hand when my child is next to me and he or she has a fever and isn't feeling well, you know? So, I mean, I think there are, again, that's, that's great, but you brought this point up too. It's like, okay, so then maybe I don't have to worry about childcare, but don't I, if right. I am trying to maintain this, this professional presence. So great. I don't have to like pay the money to have someone else watch the child, but then what, how am I doing my job effectively effectively? all the time, right? It's it's a balancing act. And so then, am I doing some of that work from, you know, six to midnight instead? And what does that make my day look like? That's just where I think people hit critical levels of exhaustion, right? Where it's like, okay, so I'm going to be doing my mom duties from, you know, 6am to 6pm, my partner's coming home, then I'm going to work from six to midnight. Okay, that doesn't sound like a viable solution a long-term solution at all in my humble opinion
1: no I agree with you 100% (laughs) I don't think I have much to add to that (laughs) no
0: it's exhausting right if you're literally you know because people say well then just do your work later or you know do the work when the baby's sleeping so then what you're trying to you know it's just exhausting you get the work done you do because you're a perfectionist because you're an overachiever because you feel committed to excellence. But you know, for a lot of us, that means that we're exhausted all the time. And so I don't want to leave this on a gloomy note, but I think this is all really important to continue considering. So this
1: was maybe a little bit more of a gloomy episode, um, but we hope that there was still something sort of enjoyable about it anyway. Maybe we've jump-started some conversations or among our listeners and their spouses or their friends or their colleagues. Um, we'd love to hear what those conversations are. We'd love to learn a little bit about your take on the sort of feminist perspective that we've laid out here did we get it all wrong do you have something to add What's your take on the current status, the current status of female academics in the pandemic? And where do you think um, we're headed next? As always, we're really appreciative of you listening. And if you want to get in touch and if you want to send us some of that feedback, you can do that at phdandparentingpodcast at gmail.com. And you can also find us on Instagram under PhD in Parenting. We'd love to connect with you as well there. If you like what you're hearing, feel free to leave us a review on iTunes. That does help others find us as well. And don't forget to like and subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes. As always,
0: thanks for listening and we hope to hear from you soon.